This is Ron Stockton. It's June of 2022. I just got back from five days in the Boston area attending the annual conference of the Association of Gravestone Studies. This is a professional association of people who study graveyards and gravestones. Jane and I have been associated with this organization for seven years. I present a paper every year. This year I spoke on Native American graveyards and grave markers. I put that paper on Deep Blue, the University of Michigan Virtual Archive, if you want to read it and see the really nice photographs associated with it. Sitting back in Dearborn, it occurred to me that you might like to hear about some fascinating gravestones. So I settled on three. One is of Jacob B. Sparks. He was a nationally famous radio preacher during the 1920s and 1930s. He was based in Royal Oak, Michigan. The second is Annie Cohen. Annie was an unknown person even to her immediate relatives until her nephew discovered her existence and wrote her story. The third is Hannah Toma. Hannah was on the Titanic with her two children. Would you like to hear about these really fascinating people? Okay, let's start with Reverend Sparks. There's a prominent personality in Oakview Cemetery in Royal Oak. He is Jacob B. Sparks. His stone has a cross, a Bible, and rays coming out of the center. The inscription reads, The Old Time Religion. I knew that phrase and the song that went with it. Give me that old time religion. Give me that old time religion. Give me that old time religion. It's good enough for me. It was good for Paul and Silas. It was good for Paul and Silas. It was good for Paul and Silas, and it's good enough for me. The inscription continued, broadcasting the word of God to the ends of the earth, and a sinner saved by grace. Then below there was a longer passage. I commit my soul into the hands of my Savior, fully confident that having redeemed it with his most precious blood, he will present it faultless before God in the mansions of heaven. Amen. I googled Sparks in the radio program, but did not find much. I did learn that he had written an autobiography published in 1948. It was called Jacob's Well of Life, New Sparks from an Old-Time Religion, the autobiography of Jacob B. Sparks. I found it on the internet and bought it. It was 302 pages, and surprisingly, it was a good read. Sparks was, John, uh, was born in Chatham, Ontario. His parents were from England. They met on the ship and fell in love. They were very religious, affiliated with the Plymouth Brethren. They did not have a congregation, but sang and prayed and read the Bible on their own. The Plymouth Brethren started in 1820 in Dublin, but were named after their first fellowship hall in Plymouth, England. They emphasized the Bible as the sole authority, salvation and the blood of Christ as key doctrines. They have independent congregations without membership, clergy, or any central structure. There are brethren who lead services. One of their early members, John Nelson Darby, was famous for inventing rapture theology, today called millennialism or end-of-time theology. I have a podcast on that subject. This interprets biblical passages as giving specific clues about the imminent return of Christ. 
Other famous brethren are Garrison Keillor, the humorist, Anthony Crossland, once British Foreign Secretary, Ken Follett, the famous novelist, Jim Wallace of Sojourners Magazine, and Ordie Wingate, British colonialist famous for creating the Jewish Special Night Squads in Palestine. He's a hero in Israel. Sparks was born in 1886 and died in 1963. The memoir had an odd opening sentence. My name is Jacob B. Sparks. I was born on the seventh day of the seventh month, the seventh child of a seventh son. He reported several times when his life was at risk, but he survived. Clearly, he had a sense of destiny. I liked Sparks personally. He grew up in a strong, loving family with pietistic values. He said his father did not swear or drink or use tobacco. He fell in love at 13 with Ida Mae Blackburn, whose dates were 1887 to 1979. But he was never alone with her or even held her hand until they were engaged at 16. Then their hands touched. He described it as a heavenly thrill. Sparks had dropped out of school and was working in construction. He convinced her parents that they should give their permission. He explained to her resistant father that he, Sparks, made more money than the father and could provide for his daughter. If he loved her, he would give permission. That sounds slightly rude to me, but it worked. Sparks had an amazing ability to learn almost any trade. He worked on his uncle's farm and thrived. He became a mason, a bricklayer, and an undertaker, working with his brother. He lived in Bay City, then in Romulus. These are Michigan places. Soon he moved to Royal Oak in the Detroit area, which he loved. He had a knack for business. He built homes and buildings and sold them, built and ran an apartment complex, ran a music shop, a bakery, a shoe store, a mortuary, a hotel, and a struggling radio station. Everything he touched made money. The radio station was a turning point in his life. As soon as it began to make money, the notorious Father Coughlin tried to press him into selling it for $10,000. He refused. Then someone offered him $500,000, which was a fortune back in those days. Again, he refused. He shifted to the new FM system and built a 400-foot tower. The station started making money, but Sparks was concerned that its Sunday programming was popular music. He was very respectful of the Sabbath and instructed his manager to play religious music. But he wanted more. He decided to start a religious program on Sunday night for the shut-ins, as he said. It would run from 9.30 until 12. He got local pastors to speak and, lo and invited local choirs and soloists to sing. Many were modestly talented, I put that politely, but he said that was what people remembered as children, so it would satisfy them. He was right. He soon began diverting, delivering the sermons himself. Here his Plymouth Brethren tradition kicked in. It was not necessary to be an ordained minister to preach. The Word of God was enough. It was not necessary. Um, he reprints several of his sermons, and they're very conventional. Trust in God, accept Christ, live right, rely on the Bible, 
avoid false teachings. It is not clear how far this program was broadcast, but he mentions meeting the sister of Will Rogers in Oklahoma and having her tell about listening. So Oklahoma's a long way from Detroit. Sparks was on the Royal Oak City Council for several years and exhibited two tendencies. He was conservative in many ways, a strong supporter of the death penalty, but was committed to social justice. The case of zoning was illustrative. He felt that some rules were unjust and were used, quote, to keep the poorer people under control. He singled out bans on trailer folk. Trailer parks were very pleasant, he said, and provided homes for veterans and others who would be otherwise without. Prohibiting them and apartment buildings was an effort to create a community without laboring people or humble homes. As he put it, I am opposed to an ordinance which favors the rich at the expense of the poor. This is the autocracy of people of small sympathies and limited vision over those less fortunately situated than themselves. A second set of issues involved morals and religion. The city council had a petition to transfer the ownership of a pool hall from a local resident to a resident of Detroit. Sparks did not like the pool hall in any case, but was opposed to the transfer to someone who did not even live in the city. He lost by a vote of six to one. Then they received a petition from a minister who had been prohibited by the police from driving around with a loudspeaker playing religious music and broadcasting sermons. Sparks thought that was a good idea and was constitutionally protected. Again, he lost six to one. At this point, he delivered a strong speech and resigned from the city council. He lost 6-1 a third time. The council said he would have to resign in writing. He did so, and thus ended his political career. Old-time religion started in 1929 and was still running when he wrote his book in 1949. He ends the book with a discussion of his gravestone, which he had already erected. What an interesting personality. Now, the second person I want to discuss is Annie Cohen. But first I have to discuss Eloise Cemetery in Westland. Here we go. Eloise Cemetery is in Westland on Henry Ruff Road, just off Michigan Avenue. It was associated with the famous Eloise Mental Hospital Complex located just across Michigan Avenue, a short distance west. The 7,100 people buried here were persons whose bodies were never collected by relatives when they died. In a sense, it is a potter's field. Now, potter's field it means a place where people are buried. Um, it's, it's run by the government or by some institution, and people who have no other place to be buried uh, or no one claims their body are buried there. In a sense, it's a potter's field. They were buried between 1910 and 1948. After 1948, the bodies of those who died were given to Wayne State Medical School. There are no standing stones, just flat stone markers. The markers do not have names, just identifying numbers. The friends of Eloise tried to clean off the markers and identify the individuals from old hospital records. 
By 2015, 4,000 names had been recorded and placed on Find a Grave, which is a, a site for recording gravestones. Many hospital records were lost. Recently, the cemetery has been closed to outsiders, so that may be the high tide of that project. When I was here around 2008, the friends were out every Saturday when the weather permitted. One of my students was active in that group, so he showed me around. I admired their efforts to recover even the names of those obscure persons, forgotten by their own families. Back then, quite a few markers had been cleared away and were visible. When my friend Terry Gallagher and I walked around in 2015, we could not find a single marker. We even prodded the moist ground with a plast plastic stick that we found nearby. Nothing. All we could see was a vast, rather pleasant and peaceful field with a sign saying this was private property and violators would be prosecuted. Apparently, this cemetery, or at least the markers, have sunk into the earth. As Shelley would say, only this and nothing more. There are two books on this cemetery. One is a popular history photographic book by Patricia Ibotson entitled Eloise, published by Arcadia. It is widely available in bookstores. It tells the story of Eloise Hospital and some of its inmates, but also includes a discussion of the cemetery. The second is a noted book entitled Annie's Ghost by Steve Luxemburg, the senior feature editor at the Washington Post. Luxemburg learned, of, learned as his mother was dying that she had not only been that she had not been an only child, as she had always said, but had a younger sister who had been sent to Eloise, where she died. His mother kept her sister's existence a secret. The author set out to find her story and the story of Eloise. The, books is, the book is a mixture of memoir, detective story, and history. It's very good. Let's turn to that book. When Steve Luxemburg's mother was near the end of her life, she revealed to a caregiver that she had a sister. This was a shock to Steve and his sisters, who had always been told their mother was an only child. In fact, being an only child was a part of mom's identity. She would often introduce herself by saying her name and then adding, I'm an only child. Steve assumed that this was probably a much older sister who had died before mom was born, but in fact, mom was the older sibling. Moreover, Annie had lived with mom well into adolescence. Even more, she had lived during the lives of Steve and his sisters. Who was this aunt, Annie, whose very existence was not acknowledged? Steve is an investigative reporter for the Washington Post, so he set off on a trek using his research skills to find out all he could. It was not easy tracking down documents, medical records, historical context, and suppressed stories. It turns out that Annie had been born with physical and mental handicaps. Her mom took care of her for years, but in time, Annie became mentally disturbed and was put in Eloise, the massive warehouse for the mentally ill and the disabled and the homeless. Eloise, on Michigan Avenue in Westland, had 75 buildings with 9,000 residents. It had farms and its own zip code. 
Its cows produced 120,000 gallons of milk in 1940. Its slaughterhouse produced annually 110,000 pounds of pork, 4,000 pounds of beef, 2,000 pounds of veal. It produced 65 tons of fruits and vegetables a month, 1,800 loaves of bread an hour. It was an economic powerhouse. Of course, today it's abandoned. About a third of Eloise's residents were paroled to the outside. Parole means they were released. Others spent their whole lives there. These were the days of lobotomies, electric shock, insulin shock, sterilization. Back in 1927, the Supreme Court, by an 8-to-1 vote, had approved sterilization for the mentally ill or morally unfit. Uh, Try defining morally unfit. I think it has something to do with sex, but my goodness, how do you define that term? But as Justice Holmes wrote, three generations of imbeciles was enough. A 1937 poll found that 45% of all Americans agreed that, quote, infants born permanently deformed or mentally handicapped should be allowed to die. Thankfully, Eloise avoided sterilization. It specialized in the mentally ill. Lapeer took the feeble-minded. That was the other uh, facility in Michigan. Michigan had the fourth highest sterilization total in the country, trailing only California, Virginia, and North Carolina. Lapeer did most of those, 2,339 of the 3,786 sterilizations in the state. When people died, their bodies were often left unclaimed. For decades, the parties parties were donated to Wayne State Medical School for teaching purposes. Most were buried in Eloise Cemetery with its 7,144 graves. These are unmarked graves with only a number on a flat stone. It's a haunting place. Steve tried to talk to as many people as he could find who remembered Annie or his parents when they were young. Did his father even know he had a sister-in-law? One person said that in the East European Jewish community, of which the Cohens were a part, having a mentally ill relative could be a deal-breaker where marriage was concerned. Annie was disappeared, as they say, for good reason. Annie's Ghost is an award-winning book. It is an amazing research effort. It is part detective story, part mystery, part biography, part sociology, part history, part memoir. I couldn't put it down. The day after I finished reading it, I went to Hebrew Memorial Park Cemetery in Clinton Township, where Annie is now buried. Steve moved his aunt to that place. It was like visiting a friend. The third uh, stone has to do with a Titanic survivor, Hannah Yusuf Tuma, whose was also called Razi, her new name. She's buried in New Calvary Cemetery in Flint. So let me tell you about that. Back in 2012, I had a ritual weekend. I did this every year. Jane was visiting with our Tucson family, and I went to a graveyard. Yesterday, I went to Flint to see the grave of a Titanic survivor. She was Mrs. Hannah Yusuf Tuma from Tibnin, that's in Lebanon. She took a camel caravan 
from Tibnin to Beirut, then a ship to Marseille in France, then a train to Cherbourg, where she boarded the Titanic on April 10, 1912. Hannah was 27 years old, traveling with her small children, daughter Maria Yosef and son George Yosef. Yusuf was the name of her father-in-law. Uh, she was joining her husband, who had come to America on his own to get established and had acquired a farm in Dewajiak. As soon as he could, he sent money for the family to join him. Uh, this is a common story. My grandmother's father did the same thing, living in America for two years before he sent money to France for his family to join him. Darwish knew his family was planning to join him, but was unaware that they were on the Titanic until he got notice a week later that they had survived and were well. They lost almost everything on the ship and were given shelter in New York by a women's relief group connected to a Catholic hospital. A week or so later, they were given train fare to Dwajiak. Within another week, they received $90 from the monies collected by donors to help the survivors. People were very generous. Anna died in 1976 of heart failure. She was 71. Finding the grave was not easy. The names got changed many times because Arabic and English letters and pronunciations are different. Immigrants in those days also wanted to make their names as American-sounding as possible, so they often made small changes to fit in. For example, Hannah is sometimes listed as Hannah with an E or Hannah, H-A-N-N-A-H. Arab newspapers in New York had their own lists of, of survivors from the, uh, and, and victims from the Titanic. Al-Huda listed Hannah Yusuf and her two children. Mira Al-Garb listed Yusuf Hannah and her children. Layla Salhum Elias wrote an article from her book in 2004 entitled The Impact of the Sinking of the Titanic on New York's Syrian Community of 2012. She listed Hina Darwish and daughter Maryam and son Jerias of Tibnin. Another listing was Hana Yusuf Tuma or Thomas with child George Maria. Other lists had John Thomas. Note that Hana, H-A-N-N-A, is John in Arabic. That's a man's name, not the same as the female name. On her gravestone, she is Anna. Darwish changed his name to Darwin, which is on his stone. Tuma got modified to Thomas. Razi was sometimes spelled R-A-S-S-E-Y. Little George would have been born Jarius. The person at New Calvary Cemetery was very helpful, but had great trouble finding Hannah either in the folders or in the computer database. I finally suggested that she type in D-A-R to see if Hannah's husband spelled in different records as Darwish, Darwis, Darwich, and Darwin was there. This produced Darwin, and I was able to find the grave. It is in the St. Teresa section, in case you're interested. The cemetery office was unaware that they had a Titanic survivor in the graveyard. I left behind a copy of my notes. The nice lady in the office gave me two cookies, oatmeal and chocolate, and some iced tea. It was very nice. I hope you've enjoyed these three discussions as much as I've enjoyed telling you about them.